Lord, we love you. We're so grateful and thankful for who you are. The fact, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us is an awesome and an amazing thing. So we love you. It's a privilege, Lord, to be able to call out your name, cast our cares on you, and come boldly to the throne of grace. So tonight, oh Lord, we we come in behalf of those who are involved in this accident nearby here. We're asking, Lord, that um, for those who are grieving now because of the loss of a loved one, that you would be the God of all comfort to them. And for those who may be injured, Lord, and maybe their life is hanging in the balance just now. Lord, we plead for mercy and grace and ask that you would minister to those who are involved. What a sad thing. Oh God, touch the needs, the hearts, the lives of those who are involved there. And Lord, we're asking for whoever is usually here and they're not here for whatever reason tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would bless them, minister to them, meet their needs, I pray. And as we look into the Word tonight, as we usually do, we ask for your guidance and direction. The Bible teaches us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we need that same Holy Spirit to help us understand, rightly divide, and and be blessed by the Word of God. So grant that tonight, we pray. Speak to our hearts from your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus. Most likely I could um, ask you all about um, your favorite book of the Bible to study. And we would get all kinds of answers, but probably there's a great likelihood that nobody here would say Titus. But I would submit that maybe because we're not that familiar with Titus. Because the things that we read here are very, very interesting and important for us. Um, probably Sunday morning, we, we may just take the time to read this whole book of the Bible. In my Bible, it's one page. Well, actually it's two pages, one on one side and one on the other. But one page of my Bible is taken up with the book of Titus. And um, I think it's short enough that we could read it. But here's one thing I'm going to go ahead and tell you about it um, before Sunday. <clears throat> what has been a major theme in First Timothy and Second Timothy? I've talked about it a lot. Very pronounced. Over and over and over we keep hearing about this. Well, he's in prison, but what's his letter about that he's writing to Timothy, First and Second Timothy? What's he keep returning to? Okay, what was what was the problem that he was addressing? Pardon me. 
No. Remember all the talk and the fables and the perjury and the slander and the foolish jesting and the fables, all that, all those different, yeah, and and disagreements. It's kind of a funny story because it's not funny then of what happened in those days, but it just happened to me yesterday. Uh, many of you know we're having to do some remodeling at our house because of some water damage. And so the guy that has been hired by the insurance company to be the project manager over what's going on at our house came by yesterday to take a look at what progress we had made and where we stood. And as it turns out, he's a very a very fine Christian man, young guy, and he's studying the Bible. He's actually he's taking like a college-level course in Scripture in his church, and he said, I've got a question for you. And they have given him an assignment, and they want this question answered, and he asked me the question. Uh, and the question was that he's supposed to answer, uh, did Jesus have the same DNA as Mary? Think about that. Did Jesus have the same DNA as Mary? Well, I don't know why they would ask that question, but for some reason, it struck me as funny. And when he asked me, I kind of burst out laughing. And then I had to explain why I thought it was funny. because, And then I explained we had just gone through First Timothy and Second Timothy. And the Bible warned against foolish questions that gender strife. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's, I don't know how, how deeply you've, pursued that thought, did Jesus have Mary's DNA, but you can go both ways with it and may, and build a case either way, and who cares? Comes right down to it, who cares? Uh, but it's one of those types of questions that really doesn't edify, and it's only going to cause people to become divided and disagree with one another and and not be productive at all. And so I was sharing that with him. He said, I'm glad you shared that. I may just tell that in my paper. <laughs> that it was a, you know, it was one of those questions that really can't be answered. So, um, and Paul warns about that. Because is it not true? We like to talk about those questions that don't really matter. People have asked you about, probably they have me, about the dinosaurs. Why doesn't the Bible talk about the dinosaurs and and, you know, where did uh, Cain, let's see, Adam and Eve, Cain, wh- where did they get their wives when Cain and Abel were born? They they went off and got, where did they get their wives? And all kind of questions people come up with about Scripture and, and so forth. That's not a new thing. That's an old thing. And, and Timothy is, or Paul is addressing that when he writes Timothy, as well as the gossip and the slander and the talk and speaking lies and hypocrisy, as I just looked through here, and old wise fables and profane babblings and, and on and on and on it goes. Well, when we get to Titus, that's going to be three Sundays in a row where that same thing is going to be pronounced and talked about. Um, as Paul writes to Titus. So tonight, uh, I'd like to spend a little bit more time than usual in um, maybe examining the background of these of this book of the Bible uh, and maybe actually deal with the text a little bit more on Sunday, depending on how the Lord leads there. It was interesting to me, though, 
There's three books of the Bible that are considered pastoral epistles. It's where Paul writes to pastors and said, these are the things that you need to remember and keep in the forefront of your minds. And in all three of those books, it is saturated with being on top of that. The gossip and the lying and the foolish talking and the slander and the perjury and the tearing people apart and those types of things. It is a danger. It is a danger to the church that Paul warns Timothy and Titus about multiple times. So, as we, as we look at this tonight, <clears throat> who wrote this book of the Bible? Paul wrote the book of the Bible. It begins in chapter 1, verse 1, with these words. Paul, a bondservant of God. Now, before we go any farther, and we could take that one phrase right there, and we could have talked about that in any of the epistles we've studied thus far. But we haven't really. We haven't spent much time on that. So I want to spend a little bit of time on it tonight to understand who Paul was and the calling that was on his life. And I think it will help us as we go through this book of the Bible and others that remain still before us. Paul, a bondservant of God. Now, the King James Version says, Paul, a servant, right? Paul, a servant. The New King James Version uh, adds that little addendum or that prefix, a bondservant. Paul, a bondservant of God. Now, the Greek word there, bondservant or servant, is this word here, doulos. When you were in the first grade, Kindergarten or first grade. Tell me, tell me one of the first words you learned when you started learning how to spell words and write them. What's one of the first words you learned? It's going to be different for all of you, but, but give me an example. Duh. Duh. I don't remember learning that one. Duh. Not, I'm not talking about toddlers now, Eddie. I'm talking about. <laughs> Oh, duh. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying duh. <laughs> okay, the, the. Yeah, we had learned that one. What's another one you learned early on? Yeah, yeah. Run, dog, run. See Jane. And things like that. Cat and dog. Right? What? What's another couple more? Mom, dad. Some very, very basic words. When you're starting to learn to read and write and speak the language, you learn some very basic words. Before you worry about reading and writing, you're learning, even as an infant, you're learning dada, ma, ma, things like that, right? So you're learning the language even then, but as you get a little bit older, when we start learning to read and write, there's certain words that we learn. Well, when I was in school uh, preparing for ministry, we had to take um, Greek. And it occurred to me today, that's one of the first words I learned. Now, I'm, ser I'm sharing that to let us know when you talk about people's names, mom, dad, the, and other words, run and stop. Are they important words? The important words we tend to focus on first because they're words we're going to use a lot. So I went back and found my little book here, the very first textbook we had. 
And remember vocabulary list? When when we were studying Greek, we had vocabulary list. And word number 12 out of all of the words that could have been chosen, what do you guess it might have been? Doulos. Right? It was this word right here, doulos. I counted it. I got the first eight words here and this list and then the next one. Count them up and it's the twelfth word that we had to learn was doulos. That lets us know it's an important word because if you're like in your first week of class and, and, and learning Greek, and that's one of the very first words that we learn, doulos. It's a basic word. It's a word that they would have been familiar with. They would have understood it very plainly. Us, not so much, however. I went to the Greek lexicon today, lexicon or lexicon, and here is the way that this word doulos is defined. It, it can be defined a slave or a servant. A servant is a slave, right? They're, they're interchangeable, a slave or a servant. But to, to give some, put some meat on the bone, to explain this word, I'm going to read from the Greek lexicon, and I'd like for you to listen to this word, because Paul says that I am a bondservant, or I am a servant of God. What does he mean by that? We go to the restaurant, and somebody comes, a servant comes and waits on us, right? And they take care of us, but at the end of the day, they go home. So they're not a servant all the time, they're a servant part of the time. But listen to what this word really means, according to the lexicon to the New Testament. A doulos, one who is in a permanent relation of servitude to another. His will altogether consumed in the will of the other. Now, think about that carefully just a moment. What is a servant biblically? What is a doulos? One who is in a permanent relation of servitude to another. His will altogether consumed in the will of the other. That is to say in this context that Paul would be the doulos and his will, he was in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where he wanted whatever the Lord wanted. He wanted what God wanted. And that didn't change after 5 o'clock in the afternoon or the next month or the next year. He was in a, as this says, a permanent relation of servitude to another person. His will altogether consumed in the will of the other. So Paul had actually laid down his will, his life. He said in, in the scripture, he said, I die daily. I lay down my desires. I lay down my will. I lay down what I want so that I can pursue what God wants for me, what God has chosen for me, what God has assigned to me. So that's a little heavier and meatier, isn't it, than just throwing the word servant out there or throwing the word slave out there. It is the, the word, it's, it's quite meaningful actually because in the book of Joshua, the Bible tells us that Moses was a doulos to God. 
And then later in the book of Joshua, it tells us that Joshua is called a doulos of God. And in the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 7, all the prophets are called servants of God or slaves of God. And then when you get a little bit farther, um, the after all the prophets are, Jesus came and he was the ultimate servant. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage talks about him dying on a cross and being the Lamb of God. And it wasn't his will, but his Father's will that was going to be done. That's what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, wasn't it? Not my will, but thine be done. So that's the picture of a servant. And so Paul is telling right up front here, he says, Paul, I am a bondservant of God and an apostle. They don't necessarily equate to one another. Apostle is someone who is sent. Okay, that's one aspect of his ministry. But the other aspect is that he's a bondservant of God. Now, let me read that definition one more time. And I'd like for you to answer in your mind, if that's not the kind of relationship that you want with God. Not not just that Paul had, or not that just a pastor would have, but that's really the relationship we all want with God. One where we are in a permanent relation of servitude to God. Our will altogether consumed in the will that he has for us. That is being a servant of God. A slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is what Paul says he was. As I mentioned in the King James Version, it says a servant of God. And the New King James Version has translated that a bond servant of God. And so I, that made me a little bit interested in what, what additional meaning that might be giving. So that word bond means to bind or tie or chain. In other words, I am chained to the Lord Jesus Christ. I, that's how serious I am about my relationship with Him and my obligations toward Him and doing His will. I have chained myself to that commitment. It's not something I walk away from. Uh, all of that, I think, can be seen and can be exemplified in how Paul lived his life. The title, slave of God or servant of God, was one which gave Paul the right um, to walk in a great succession. I read something that I'd like for you to think about this thought for just a moment. When anyone enters the church, now this, I'm not talking about a building here. We're talking about coming into the church, to God's church. When anyone enters the church, he does not enter an institution which began yesterday. Think about that. Can you imagine the magnitude, the importance, the weight of being a part of God's church? Think about that again. When someone enters the church, he does not enter an institution which began yesterday. There is a history to the church. There's a revelation that's been given to the church. There is a book by which the church lives, this book right here called the Bible. There is a gospel message that has been committed to the church. And it is a, it is a, a responsibility and a weight that we have as Christians. I, I just, I just kind of sense in general in America, 
our relationship with God and our commitment to the church doesn't measure up to anything like about what we're talking about. Would you agree? We take it far too lightly. We don't, we don't get the bond servant part. We don't get the being chained and committed to the Lord to that degree. Uh, as, as Paul explains it here. And, and, and I, I think it's interesting that Paul says, I'm a bond servant of God and an apostle. Because there's a distinction there. Because none of us are apostles. But all of us should be servants of the Lord. And in a deeper level, greater commitment than what is the norm today. Do you know what the norm was in the New Testament days? The norm in the New Testament days was having a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ that was so real and so genuine and so true that people laid down their lives and they died standing up for Jesus. I can't imagine that happening a whole lot now. There's a few. There's some people who would give them, lay their life down for the Lord Jesus. But I have a feeling there's a whole lot who wouldn't. Uh, History says that three out of five who walk down the streets of the day had the brand marks of their master on their body somewhere. Mm-hmm. Very true. That they related to the idea of of servant of doulos a lot better than we do. That they knew what it meant. And when Paul said, "I am a bond servant of God." And an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith, then that's a very important thing and something that uh, it transformed his life. And he basically laid everything down in his life. Uh, perhaps everything he had desired, everything he had wanted, he laid it down to be what God willed him and has called him to be. Um, in chapter 1, verse 2. The Bible says he continues, he talks about in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Especially that last line there, in time, before time began. Think about that. We have a hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. What does that tell us about eternal life? Yeah, it, it is eternal, it's infinite. But but some people, I've heard people explain the gospel this way, and, and Jesus Christ coming to be the Savior of the world, I've heard it explained this way. That God gave the law, and the law didn't work, and so God had to go to plan B and send Jesus to do the work. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. Jesus is not, plan B. Never has been, never will be. Jesus was plan A from the beginning. And I think that's what we're reading here because the Lord has promised eternal life which God cannot lie, God who cannot lie promised before time began. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now, let's think for just a moment. Um, first of all, God's purpose for man was always one of salvation. 
God wants mankind to be saved. Amen? I do not believe for one second in my mind, in my heart, I do not believe that God has created any man with the intent and purpose and desire that that man be lost. I do not believe in uh, in the fact that some have been predestined to be saved and some have been predestined to be lost. I don't believe that at all. I hope you don't. I believe that the Lord, as the scripture says here, that there is hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. That, that life is available to all men, women, boys, and girls. No matter where they're from, doesn't matter. It's available to all. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe, right? So it's not just a few here or a few there. Oh, you can't come because you're not part of the elect. None of that. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin, who came up with all that, did a great disservice to Christianity when he came up with that terrible heresy that some people had been predestined to be lost. And some had been predestined to be saved. And you couldn't change it if you wanted to. Well, the next thing I'd like for you to notice there is that phrase, verse 3. That God has in due time manifested his word through preaching. Jesus Christ came at the due time, at the promised time. Galatians 4, verse 4 tells us that. Uh, let me flip over there right quick and, and read that because it goes along very well with what we're talking about. Where the Bible says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. I'm going to ask a question based on this verse. The answer's in this verse, so I'd like somebody to give me the answer. When did Jesus come to this earth? Well, in Galatians 4, what would the wording be? Galatians 4, 4. When did God? When the fullness of the time had come. It's the same thing. In Galatians 4, 4, it's when God determined that it was the time. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. And in Titus, it would be the due time. When the due time came, when God said it was the right time, then God sent forth His Son. Christianity came to this world at a time when it was uniquely possible for the message to be spread. Now, I want to share with you five, five different um, things that facilitated the spread of the gospel. Why, when Jesus came... And we know it was the fullness of time, and we know it was due time, but what you, what might we think facilitated that? What made it the right time? Why did God choose the time that He chose? Number one, practically all the world spoke Greek. Now, if you had to go and be a mission, God called you today to go and be a missionary to people in South America, how many of you would be able to accomplish that with ease, linguistically, language-wise? 
Would anybody besides me have trouble going and communicate with those people? Because once I've said Taco Bell and burrito, I've used about all my Spanish. I can't speak Spanish. So it would be a tremendous difficult if, if I had to go to Russia, if I had to go to Mexico, if I had to go to to Paris and speak French, if I had to it, it, these different places, if it involved another language, I would be in a mess because I don't know those languages. Language barriers are a tremendous barrier to the spread of the gospel. And it had always been that way, ever since the Tower of Babel. But now, in the time when Jesus was born, the Roman Empire, well, first of all, there was Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, and Greek was spread all over the whole world. And now that Rome is in power, now the whole world's speaking Greek. Now, the whole world's not speaking only Greek. They still have their, their native languages, but just about the whole world was bilingual. They spoke their local language, and they spoke Greek, just like today. If you've watched the Olympics, how many athletes did they interview from other countries and they all were able to speak what? Wasn't that amazing? Whether they were from Russia or Poland or Norway, wherever they were from, they spoke their native language. But when they got on TV, they spoke English because they knew that's what the TV announcers were broadcasting to. And it's that's that kind of way now with the English language. So in the in the Bible days before Jesus was born... Practically all the world spoke Greek. That makes it easy to share the gospel, doesn't it? When everybody understands your language. The second thing I'll mention is that there were practically no frontiers. That is to say that the Roman Empire was everywhere. Everywhere you went, Rome controlled it. Greek was the language that was acceptable and spoken. You could go anywhere you want. It wasn't any problem at all to go anywhere in the Roman Empire. Uh, today, if you go to Europe... You don't have that luxury. Today you have to have passports and go through customs and go through borders and the Iron Curtain and walls and all kind of barriers. There's all kinds of challenges moving from one place to another. Now, if you watch the Olympics in Korea, you've got North Korea and South Korea, and in between you've got this place called what? DMZ. The DMZ. Exactly. Very interesting to, to see that explained, wasn't it, during the Olympics at certain times. So there's a lot of trouble and difficulty now as far as barriers and going certain places. But here, when Rome was in control, the Roman Empire, it was very easy to move from one place to another. The next thing, number three, travel was comparatively easy because of the Roman roads that had been built. The Romans were, were well noted for construction of roads and all over the land. Eh? Uh-huh. But to a lot of people, it's, it's nothing. It don't, it's not even important. But look at DMZ. Mm-hmm. Nobody walks across there. No, they don't. Yeah, they don't come back. That's true. Yeah, it would. If you lived in uh, South Korea and you wanted to evangelize North Korea, you couldn't do it. You couldn't get across that border, even though you speak, I guess they speak the same language. I'm not sure if they have different dialect or not. But it did, yeah, yeah, it's very true. So it, it was a period in time where there was one language, there was one government. You could, you could go from place to place. The Roman roads, 
made it fairly easy. You still traveled with animals and 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 carts and so forth. But uh, I mean, that's not a Greyhound bus. But let's face it, it's a whole lot better than it had was before you had the roads. Pardon me. True. Then the the world was largely at peace. Number four is called the Pax Romana, Roman peace is how it's noted in history. So you you were feel you could feel free to go anywhere you wanted to go. There were no problems in travel and so forth. And then finally, number five, people were searching. Um, the religions there were many religions. The Book of Acts even talks about that, right? Paul goes to Athens. He sees all these all these gods and temples, and and he says, "I perceive that you are too religious. You have King James version says superstitious. You're superstitious, but it actually what he was saying, you have too many religions, and um, we have too many religions today, don't we?" Because there's only one Lord, one God, and one faith. Um, so we're in the same boat there. But people were seeking, people were searching. Uh, the philosophers were beginning to to think out loud and publish their thoughts and so forth. So it was just a time when people were, were interested. This is the world in which uh, Paul ministered. So now having talked about Paul, the bondservant, the one called by God who surrendered his life to the will of the Lord. Let's speak just a minute, or a few moments now about Titus. Um, I think it's going to become pretty obvious to us that Titus has a very different personality from Timothy. For those of you who may remember, somebody give me a personality profile of Timothy. Timid. Timid. Very good. What else? You think he might have been somewhat emotional? Why? Why would I say that? Exactly. When when he and Paul departed, Paul says, "I I greatly remember that day, seeing you in tears when we departed." So he was somewhat emotional, probably tender-hearted. Um, what else? Timothy? Paul did. Paul did. I, I, I think probably we was, it was established enough there with Timothy. He was kind of, um, he was young, uh, kind of timid. He wouldn't have been forward and outgoing and take charge kind of guy. He seemed to have been the kind of guy that probably would not have asserted himself. And, and of course, Paul says to him, let no man despise your youth. You need to stand up and do what you've been called to do and, and, and fight the good fight of faith, you know, and stir up the gift of God that's within you. You know, come on. He kind of gives them a, a, Paul does gives them a kick in the seat of the pants, Harley. You know, just, just get them up, get them started. Come on. But Titus is going to be, you don't see any of that in Titus. Titus seems to be the kind of guy that's mature and he's been through the battles. And uh, and Paul is just telling him, just just stand up and do what you know you're supposed to do, because you've done it before, you've done it in other places. Now I need you here, 
go do it here. And we'll read a, a bit about that as we look at this. Um, if you would, turn with me to Galatians 1. Uh, we're looking now at Titus and his relationship to Paul through the years. Galatians 1.15 is where we're going to begin. Um, remember when Paul, he's giving a testimony here now of his his uh, experience in coming to Christ. And most of you remember that. It's taught in the book of Acts how he's going on the road to Damascus and there's a light from heaven and it drives him to his knees and Paul repents and says, um, um, a voice says, Paul, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks and, and he turns his life over to the Lord. What would you have me do, Lord? And And then Paul becomes a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ at that point and surrenders his life to the Lord. And then he continues, um, Paul does, to give his testimony in verse 17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Now you would expect that he would have, really, wouldn't you? I mean, he's not been an apostle and he's not been a Christian. Now he's now he's an apostle and a Christian and a servant. God's got a job for him to do. You'd think first thing he would have done was run up to Jerusalem and talk to the rest of the apostles. But he says, no, I didn't do that. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia. I went to the desert and returned again to Damascus. Verse 18 says, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, but just stayed there a couple weeks, 15 days. But when we get down to verse uh, 22, he says, I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Um, but they were hearing only, they heard that he who formerly, that being Paul, persecuted us, now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. But look after at verse 2. After Paul has been preaching and traveling and sharing the gospel with people, the Bible says, after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem. This man's been ministering and been true to the Lord for 14 years now. I don't know about you, that's a long time. I mean, you think about it. It's easy to say 14 years. It's a lot harder to live it. And it's a lot harder to live it the way he had to live it and the persecution he had. But he says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, and look what he says, with Barnabas, and also took who? I took Titus with me. So he's going back to to a time when he was just getting good and started in his ministry. And the reason I say that, and he took Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, but they ended up going to Jerusalem, and look what the Bible says in um, verse 9. It says, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So finally they're accepting Paul as a full-fledged, bona fide, apostle, Christian, servant of the Lord Jesus. But Titus, the main thing is I want to share there is that Titus was with them. Now, in 2 Corinthians, does anybody remember anything about 2 Corinthians when Paul wrote to them? Anybody remember the, the nature of what he had to say to them? Paul had a whole lot of opposition from the Corinthians. There were people who were charging him with being a phony. He was not a real apostle at all. 
they said and criticized him and so forth. And so Paul has to write to them, and he stands up to these people and and um, uh, shares his credentials, if you will, as a genuine apostle and so forth. But in Second Corinthians, you might want to check this out sometime. I won't have time to do it with you right now. In Second Corinthians, nine times, nine times, Paul talks about Titus being with him and the work that Titus did for Paul in Corinth. See, they had they had been together, they had traveled together, they had worked together, they knew each other. Um, Titus had worked in a tough spot. Corinthians was a tough place. Uh, they were hard on preachers in Corinth. There was a lot of phonies, a lot of uh, false teaching and so forth in Corinth. Um, Paul wrote to them what is called the severe letter. We don't have it. It's only referred to, but he came down hard on them. And Titus is the one who delivered that message. So Titus was not a timid guy. Titus was kind of like the, I don't know, a bouncer. You know what I mean? I mean, he, whatever Paul said he needed done, Titus said, okay, I'll do it. And he went right in there and he did what Paul wanted done. And he'd, he'd stand up for the faith and stand up for the doctrines of the church and do whatever Paul asked him to do, wherever he was needed. Paul said, I need you here. That's where he'd go. He said, I need you over here at Corinth. That's where he went. Well, when we're reading Titus now, this letter um, that we're studying tonight, can somebody tell me, have you seen it yet, where it is that um, Titus is ministering now? Crete. Thank you. What is Crete? It's an island. It's a Greek island. Crete. Crete is... Um, one of the designations that the island of Crete had in those days was the island of a hundred cities. A hundred cities. So there were, it's not like it was a little, little place. It's something like the, the eighth largest island. I, I better not even say it. I think it was the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean. So big island. It was not a little tiny place. It wasn't Gilligan's Island, folks. It was a big place in a hundred cities on this island. A lot of people there. But the, the nature of that people was, um, they, they had a reputation being hard to get along with, as we're going to see. And Paul pulled no punches when he talked about these people, as we're about to read. Let's do that beginning in, in, um, Well, it'd help if I was on the right book of the Bible. I was looking at 2 Timothy. Verse 5. Paul says, after saying, I'm Paul, I'm a servant. You know, God sent his son Jesus at the right time and called me to be an apostle and a servant. And, and I'm writing to you, verse 4, Titus, you're a true son in our common faith. You've been with me, stood by me side by side. We've worked together. I've seen you at work. I'm, I got confidence in you. He says in verse 5 now, Titus chapter 1 verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete. Why did I leave you in Crete? That you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. 
Now, then, then Paul goes and gives this long list of uh, how elders should act and behave and, and so forth. Uh, well, I guess we need to read that if we're going to read the next part. Uh, verse 6, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now listen to verse 10, and he starts talking about this group of people at Crete. For there are many insubordinate, what is insubordinate? Okay, disrespectful, disobedient. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, which will be referring to who? To Jews. Verse 11, he says, whose mouths must be stopped. Notice that. There are many insubordinate and idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the Jews, whose mouths must be stopped. Why do you think they must be stopped? What did we learn last week? Right, and what happens? Paul, Paul told Timothy, these things are like a... What's the word he used? Cancer. These things are like a cancer. If, if this is not stopped, it'll spread all over the place. Paul said it's like a cancer. So that, that's why he says in verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, this is one of the Christians said this about themselves. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. <laughs> he seemed to be discontented with his, his, his people. There you go. <laughs> he, but you know what? I would suspect he's telling the truth. Because that's exactly what Paul is trying to make. And he uses, he, he quotes a, a non-Christian Author, writer, poet, philosopher, whoever. He's not quoting somebody that's a, a Christian. He's quoting somebody. Everybody knows this, in fact. This is not even undeniable. Everybody knows this. Why, even, even one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. In verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, 
but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Welcome to Crete, Titus. So chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Tell it, Titus, he says. Tell that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience. Tell the older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. And that they admonish the young women. These are the older women he's talking to. And that they're supposed to admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Verse 6, now he's taking, he's getting everybody in the church here. He's not picking on anybody in specific, specifically. He's just, he's, he's getting the men and the women and the young and the old. Do you get that? So when you get to verse 6, he says, Likewise, Titus, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Verse 7, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In showing or in doctrine in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. I'll tell you what, we'll come back to verses 11 through 15 if we have time. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. To be peaceable. Gentle. Showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish and disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. Notice that. I want you to say this over and over and over, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable men. Do you see what he's saying there? 
these things that I'm warning against, you keep saying it, and you keep saying it, and you keep saying it, and you keep saying it. I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works, not these bad works that he's enumerated and named there. I'll have to be honest enough to tell you that I'm really struggling going to, su- going to sermon number three on a Sunday morning and talking about all these things again. But it didn't seem to bother Paul, did it? And he said, you keep hammering it. Notice that. I want you to affirm constantly these things. That people have to act right. Verse 9, his very next statement. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. For they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Somebody who has the King James Version, read that verse for me, number 10. Okay. Isn't it amazing that Paul gives the directions and what to do with obstinate, unruly people? He spells it out. He puts it right in the book. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And then he goes, let's... Because of the sake of time, let's go back up now to verses 11 through 15 and we'll end up there. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly righteously and godly in this present age. Now, let me stop right there and ask this question. How many of us should deny ungodliness and worldly lust? (coughs) Thank you. How many of us should live soberly and righteously and godly? And when should we be doing that? In this present age, right now. It's not when we get, when we all get to heaven, and then we'll all behave ourselves. Y'all heard that, right? I mean, you can't help it. You're going to do this here, and you're going to do that there. But when we get to heaven, we'll all be perfect. This is not saying we're supposed to get it right when we get to heaven. We're supposed to get it right now. That's why he says that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. Why would he tell us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age? Why would he tell us to do that if it was impossible to do it? It's not impossible to do it, is it? No, we can live a life that's surrendered to the Lord Jesus and accomplish that. And he goes on to say, looking for the blessed hope... And glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, all that Paul has said in this book, and some of it was pretty straight, wasn't it? Verse 15, Paul says, Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Now, I'll say this to you again. I said it last Wednesday night, and I think I said it Sunday morning. How many of us like being rebuked? No, none of us like that kind of stuff. But the Lord says, okay, you're supposed to do this. This is because Titus, not only am I, now he's talking, I'm speaking as Paul here, not only am I, Titus, a doulos, a bondservant, with an unwavering commitment to do the will of the one I'm serving, but that's you too, Titus. You're also a doulos. And not only is Titus a doulos, a servant, but we also are servants of the Lord, bond servants, committed to him to do his will, sold out to the Lord to do what is pleasing in God's sight. And he says, let no one despise you. Wow. It's amazing how somehow we just dismiss the Scripture so lightly and read over it. Just keep right on getting it without really getting it. And seeing how plainly the Apostle Paul talked to these two pastors in these three different letters. Any questions, comments, observations tonight? Anybody? Absolutely. It's not the murder and all that stuff. You know, and these are the things we tend to just accept. We dismiss them. It's everyday life. She's just that way. Yeah. But those are things that are. Excuse me. He's just that way. (laughs) They are just that way. They are just that way. Right. I got to be a fair minded rebuker, I guess. Which is? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, that's the point here, though. That's the point here. You know what? I, I wish I had looked that word up, despise, and looked at it closely. But I can almost promise you it does not mean please everybody in the sense that you don't despise me because you agree with everything. It does not mean that, I'm quite sure. There's a deeper, meatier meaning to that. Because Jesus was despised and Paul has been despised and we're all going to be despised um, in certain ways. Tim?
the most timid award? Yes. Well, you know, that's a biblical kind of thing in, in Scripture. You name the person and that's what they are. <coughs> Absolutely. He's got a little trophy that says, most timid. <laughs> oh, goodness. Anybody else? I'm going to tell you what. I, I, have, I have had an eye-opener on these pastoral epistles. I really have. I, I think for the first time in my life I have seen what Paul was telling them they were going to deal with and how they should handle it. And it's so crystal clear, uh, whereas I've never really seen that before. The Word is good stuff, I'm going to tell you. Thank you, Lord, that you care about us so much. And as we cast our care on you tonight, Lord, you've heard every every request. I can't help but believe, Lord, that every time a request is shared, that you see that as an act of faith. The very fact that we ask, the very fact that we lift up a need to you, is a sign that we believe you can do something about it. So I pray, Lord, tonight that you would see our faith, that you would reward our faith, that you would minister to these needs. Lord, some of these needs are so sad. Thank you for the the encouragement, the answers to prayer, the praise reports that we've heard tonight. What an awesome God you are. And we just ask you, Lord, to continue to con- take to take control over these other needs and bless and minister and move in each of these situations. You're a God who is able, you're faithful, you're good, you're loving and compassionate towards us. So I pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done, that you would bless each of these individuals. Thank you, Lord. These children, Lord, children who have cancer, what a sad thing. So minister to these, the ones who are bereaved. Again, this these uh, sad situation with the accident that we mentioned earlier. Again, minister to those who were involved there. Touch your people, Lord. Needs that uh, obviously exist. We have people who are always here who are not here tonight. And we just pray, Lord, that you would minister to them whatever they may be facing. Have your way in our lives. Help us to know and be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can live godly and righteously in this present world. Help us do it for the glory of God and in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.